nations will rise and fall. The world will feel like it's crumbling around us. There will be times where we feel unable to carry on. Our most trusted people will hurt us. But God is still in control. God is still good. God is still providing. God is still faithful. Our God has been, is, and will be the greatest strength in our lives. We can be still because God still is. So when I was a kid, I had this recurring nightmare. Um, and it happened so often that it lasted from the time I was just ah, a little kid all the way into my 20s uh, that right now, if I tried to, I could call up in vivid detail every bit about that nightmare. And it would mean nothing to you, uh, but to me, this thing was absolutely terrifying and just kept coming back and back and back in my mind. And I always wanted to know, is there just some meaning behind this crazy dream uh, that I'm having? And we are in this second week uh, working through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And today we hit a chapter that a lot of people believe is maybe one of the most important passages of biblical prophecy in the entire Bible. And the thing starts with a nightmare. It starts with a a terrifying and some believe to be recurring dream um, that was had by this king. So let's pray and then let's dive into Daniel chapter 2. Heavenly Father, we we come to you today in Jesus' name and, and we believe that all scripture is breathed out by you and all scripture is applicable to our lives. And so as we study through this passage today about somebody wrestling with a message from you, we pray that we also would wrestle with what message you may have for us in this passage as well. So we pray this all again in Jesus' name, amen. So today we're in uh, Daniel 2, so let me just start with the very first verse, Daniel 2, chapter 1. Uh, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, I want to stop for a second. Um, uh, Ryan Weber, who's our music director, told me the great way to remember how to spell Nebuchadnezzar, because I've had to spell it a million times since I've been typing my message, is to remember that his nickname is Chad. And, and, and if you get that, it's Nebu, Chad. Nezer, it's really easy. So I had to spell it like a thousand times writing this message. You're welcome, King Chad. Okay, so in the second year of his reign, uh, Chad had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, uh, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And when they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream and I am anxious uh, to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king. Aramaic begins here. Okay, if you're reading your Bible, it actually says, uh, go to the next slide. I think, or maybe the other way. Keep going. I don't know where it is. It says literally somewhere in here. Oh, next one. Hey, there it is. Right there. Your Bible actually says these words. Aramaic begins here. Really strange, right? 
Why does your Bible have that little note? Why is it there as a footnote or is it a little note in here? Well, what happens is uh, most of the Old Testament of the Bible is written in a language called Hebrew, which is uh, the language of the Israelites. And all of a sudden in the book of Daniel, it pivots, it stops, and it's in Aramaic. And it's in Aramaic in chapter two and chapter three and chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, half of chapter seven, and then it switches back to Hebrew. That's kind of wild, isn't it? There's, and there's a lot of people who have different reasons for why they think this is. Uh, I think that Aramaic was the, it was the court language of the time. So I think what we're doing is we're switching to a little bit of the official court records that were written in Chad's, you know, court. And people wrote it down right from the record and copied it into here. So this was the official court record. You'll also notice that this passage begins to use um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's Babylonian names as it's here because I think it came out of the court records. Just thought that was a little aside. We'd throw in why that's there. Okay, um, so let's keep reading. This is what the guys say in Aramaic. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretations. And the king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, he's asking the impossible. He's like, guys, tell me what I dreamed and what the interpretation is. And they're like, great, tell us the dream. He's like, no, you tell me what my dream is. If you don't tell me the word dream and your interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made into a garbage dump. A little extreme. He's he's a good manager. He knows how to motivate his, his people. It says, but if you make the dream and, uh, and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive uh, gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretations known to me. They answered a second time, may the king tell the dream to his servants and we will make known the interpretation. And the king replied, I know for certain you're trying to buy time. You're trying to gain some time because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream and I will know that, you, that what you give me is the interpretation. So what the king is trying to do here is he's trying to make sure that they're not like using parlor tricks on him, right? But he's asking the impossible, He's like, tell me what I dreamed and the interpretation. It would be like me saying to you, tell me the nightmare I had as a child. Go ahead. Right? And by the way, it was a giant um, um, chasing my family down the street that we lived on and going into the woods behind our house and throwing boulders at the house. Now that I told you that, you could make up an interpretation, couldn't you? You can come up with all kinds of ideas. That's what the king was trying to avoid. He didn't want these guys to just make up an interpretation. He wanted to really know what this meant because for Babylonians in their age, they believed that the gods, lowercase g, spoke to them through their dreams, especially the king. And the king's dreams would have to do with his kingdom. And so he wanted to know for sure what this was. But it was an impossible ask. And this is their response to him. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answer the king, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. You're asking the impossible. Consequently, no king, however great or powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. Get this next verse. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. 
And because of this, the king became violently angry, gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon, and the decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed, and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. Right? You know, and I know, and the wise men knew, and the king knew, everybody knew, that he was asking the impossible, right? He's asking them to do something that no one can do, and when they don't do it, he's like, well, I guess the logical response is I have to kill everyone now. Right? That's, that's how Chad was, right? Now look at verse 14. Look what happens next. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion. Let me just stop right there. I love Joel's reference earlier. One of the easy things that we can, traps we can fall into in Daniel is to make these messages, let's be like Daniel. But let's, let's be honest. Daniel's a crazy good guy, right? He gets this right a lot of the time, right? I mean, the message is not about be like Daniel. This is a guy, his tact and discretion, he just oozes it. We saw that in chapter one. We see that again. He responds with tact and discretion to Arioch, the king's official, and says, why is this decree from the king so harsh? And then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. I think that implies that Daniel has made another friend. Have you, do you see that? Like normally a guy who's out there to kill you because the king said to kill you is not going to spend the time explaining it to you, right? But Daniel had favor again with another person because of his tact and discretion. And so the guy explained the situation and Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Daniel's like, all right, then let's do the impossible. Now what makes Daniel think that he could possibly do this. It's a callback if you were here last week and not at the beach. All right. Anybody remember this from last week? Daniel 1, uh, verse 17, it says this. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding and every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. Now, just because Daniel understood visions and dreams of every kind doesn't mean he can read the king's mind. That's going to take something else, right? It's going to take what the wise men said. It's going to take the gods whose dwelling place is not with humans, right? It's going to take something different. And so, verse 17, Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. Hey, look at that. They used the Hebrew names. I got that wrong earlier. Um, urging them um, to ask the God of heavens for mercy concerning this mystery so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel praised the God of heavens. Now, there's actually a whole bunch of stuff kind of buried in there that I don't want us to miss. Daniel had a gift that God had gave him, a supernatural gift. He could interpret dreams and visions. He and his friends, we were told in the last chapter, were 10 times as wise and understanding as anyone else in Babylon. If there was anybody who could put together a whiteboarding session to solve this problem, it's these guys, right? They could have sat down to brainstorm to figure this whole thing out. But when Daniel calls his friends together, it's not for a brainstorming session. It's not to do some whiteboarding. It's not to problem solve. He calls his buddies together and says, listen, would you guys pray with me? It's the same thing we saw with the Apostle Paul last week, wasn't it? He calls on them to pray. And this is something we have been, if you haven't noticed, growing in conviction around here at Riff. And that is we've realized that our prayer culture is kind of spotty. 
And it depends on who you are and who you're with. Like, for instance, the first three years that I was around RIV way back in the 90s, I would have lunch every week with Pastor Paul, and he and I would have lunch, and then after lunch, we would always go for a walk and pray. And so we had a spot that we would walk out in the fields out at Michigan State and another spot that we'd walk around Frandor, down Grand River and around there. And we would just pray every time. And, and there are groups of, uh, of people in Riverview that are constantly praying. We have prayer requests and we send out to hundreds of people every week and people are praying for these prayer requests. And in our groups and ministries, we pray a lot, but we realize in our weekend services, we haven't been as good as praying corporately. We just don't do this nearly enough. That's why last week we started this intentional prayer time for the series of Daniel. We're just going to do it, uh, and then we'll see what happens, where we just stop and we just pick something every week that we're going to pray for together. And I know it's awkward, but that is not on you. That's on us, because we haven't developed that culture in our church, and so of course it feels awkward to all of us. But there is so much in this world to pray for. And there's so many things in this world that seem impossible to us, like Daniel's situation right here. And he's like, I could try to brainstorm my way out of this thing, or we can get together and we could pray. And so he did, and they got together, and they prayed, and it said that God that night gave him a vision, and in the vision, he knew the king's dream, and he knew the interpretation. What I love is that Daniel's response to God answering his prayer is to do what? He prayed more. <laughs> Look at this, verse 19. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel as, as, as in a vision at night, and Daniel praised the God of heavens and declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and light dwells with him. And I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my ancestors, because you have given me wisdom and power and now you have let me know what we have asked of you for you have let us know the king's mystery. Now we could do a whole message on that prayer alone. But notice what Daniel does. He gives credit where credit is due. He's like, no one can do this thing. This thing is absolutely impossible. The only one who can do this thing is God and God has done it. And then he acknowledges who God is. He's like, God is the one who establishes kings, and God is the one who removes kings. This is going to be a a common theme uh, through Daniel. And he gives God all the praise and the honor and the glory. He says, you are the one who changes times, and you're the one who changes seasons. And, And he understands something that we too often forget, and that is we are not ultimately in charge. God places people in authority and he places us under their authority, just like we saw last week. And the reasons he does this are sometimes above our pay grade. And our responsibility is to acknowledge who God is and then find our place in the story that God is telling. Now watch this, verse 24. It says, therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will give him the interpretation. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I found a man. Let's just stop there for a second. Notice what he just did? This guy just took credit for Daniel, right? And it's a little tangent, but I think it's notable. Daniel doesn't bother correcting him. 
right? We don't always have to get credit for things. We don't always have to correct someone when they do something like this. He's like, yeah, 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 whatever, right? So I found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. And the king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king, no. No wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he's asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, the mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living. Notice that. He's like, quickly, I want to assure you, it's not because I'm 10 times wiser than everyone, which I am. Right? He's just throwing that up because the king has already said, this guy's the wisest guy. He's like, I want to let you know, this is not because of my whiteboarding session. This is not because I was able to figure it out. I want to let you know it's not because of me, but in order that the interpretation might be known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. I love that one little bit right in there. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Okay. Earlier, I said that many people believe that this chapter is one of the, it's like a linchpin chapter in the Bible uh, from a prophecy standpoint. So we have to actually talk about this really weird word for a second, prophecy. <laughs> when we think about prophecy, we, we normally think about like a Nostradamus, right? <laughs> and stuff like that. And for me, the best definition I've ever heard of prophecy, I can't remember who said it, um, is that prophecy is history written in advance. In other words, it is God acknowledging and telling us what is going to happen, not what might happen, not what the options are at play, but what is going to happen. History written in advance. And it was fun kind of studying through this passage. I realized that one study of the Bible said that 27% of this book, more than a quarter of this book, has a predictive prophecy sort of element to it. And more than half of it has been fulfilled. Stuff written thousands of years before it happened has been fulfilled. Now, the tricky part of prophecy is you can't always fully understand it ahead of time until it is fulfilled because it seems bonkers in advance right? And then even then, people reject stuff. Like, if you remember Jesus, he, he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah in the temple and said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And what do they do? They're like, you're crazy. And they tried to kill him in that chapter, right? Because he was fulfilling this prophecy. In fact, as a little tangent, Jesus had at least 500 prophecies written about him in the Old Testament, thousands of years before he was born. He fulfilled more than like 300 of them the first time he came around, and the rest are still to come. All right, so here is the dream that Chad had. I didn't know that rhyme until I said it, and that was great. <laughs> here it is. Your Majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. 
The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. Its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. And as you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. And then the iron, the fired clay, um, the, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. All right, that's pretty detailed. But God gave Daniel all of the details. What he dreamed about that day was a colossal, terrifying statue that looks like this. And I know this does not seem colossal or terrifying because we made it out of styrofoam. (laughs) But this is essentially uh, the statue, right? So I want you to gaze upon the beauty of this terrifying statue (laughs) while we read the interpretation that Daniel now gives for this thing. By the way, I did. I asked our creative team, make me something colossal and terrifying (laughs) out of styrofoam. Here it is. So, okay. Here we go. This was the dream. Daniel says, now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of the the heavens has given you sovereignty and power and strength and glory. And wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything, and that iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. And you saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay and that the toes um, of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong. Part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but not hold together just as iron does not mix with fired clay. Well, there you go. That's easy to understand. (laughs) Now, here's what happens. There are a bunch of ways to go sideways when we read something like this in the Old Testament, some kind of prophetic passage like this. The first is to assume that we have it all figured out. I did as deep of a dive as I could on this passage of studying, and here's the bottom line that I discovered. The early church fathers were almost immediately divided over the interpretation of Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. By the time we got to the reformers, they were divided. The last 200 years, people have gotten almost more divided. And if you want to have a lot of fun, do a YouTube or Google image search for Daniel 2. You're welcome. It's crazy, right? There's tons of people with all their charts and their graphs and everything they're trying to figure out. So the second mistake that we could make with something like this is just to throw up our hands and say, well, I guess it's not worth it, right? It's not worth spending any time trying to figure this stuff out because nobody uh, agrees on this stuff. But we know in the verse we 
prayed about earlier that in 2 Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out for God and is useful to us. So there's something here that is useful for us. And the third mistake is thinking that this doesn't apply to us at all. Now, the fourth mistake, I'll I'll tell you that one later. Daniel starts by telling us about the statue. So let's look at the statue. Let's talk about it from this perspective of Daniel's interpretation. There are a lot of different interpretations out there. There's at least four major schools of thought. I don't have time to give you all of that. It'd be like a seminary class. Only seven of you would care. So I'm just going to tell you my best current interpretation of what I see here. The first part is easy because he tells us what it is. Daniel starts by talking about this golden head up here. And he's like, he's like, Nebuchadnezzar, this is you. This is you and your kingdom. This part of the dream is crystal clear. And then he starts working from the top of the statue down to the bottom of the statue. And you'll notice a couple of things. It goes from gold to silver to bronze to iron to a mix of iron and clay. And so what happens is the lower you actually go down on the statue, um, or, or so the higher you go on the statue, the, the higher the specific gravity of the metal. You could say it is heavier on the top. It's top heavy in that sense. It's, and yet it is, is stronger on its way down all the way until you get to the feet. Everything gets stronger from top to bottom. And that's really important for us to grasp here. Because in this imagery, um, we have to acknowledge that we, just like every other society that's ever lived before us, we have this feeling of cultural superiority, don't we? We say things like, I can't believe they used to believe that. I can't believe they used to have that haircut, Right? We always have this cultural superiority, but what we see in this dream is things may get heavier and stronger and bigger, but they are made of inferior stuff from top to bottom. We see that in this passage. Now, what are these kingdoms? Well, he doesn't say. Chapter 7 actually gives us a little key, I think, and we're going to get to chapter 7 later. Chapter 7 gives us a little bit of key, but, and there's at least four, like I said, different interpretations about this, but this is what I think is going on with these. We have the statue up here, the gold head is Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And then we have this chest and arms that is made out of silver. And right after the Babylonians' rule, which by the way was only around 70 years, <laughs> um, and Nebuchadnezzar's rule and, and, and the Babylonian rule, we have a, another kingdom that emerged, the Media Persian in, uh, kingdom. And that one lasted for about 200 years. And that is, is symbolized here by the silver. When you get to the, 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 the chest and arms of silver, when you get to the stomach and the thighs of bronze, that is the Greek empire, Greece. That was Alexander the Great. You may remember Alexander the Great. He conquered the world in like 10 or 15 years as a really like young kid. But then the, the, his kingdom lasted for about 170 years, but it was overthrown by this incredibly strong, you're not gonna be able to see this. So I know it's really heavy because it's styrofoam, but I'm gonna like this. Um, the legs here, which by the way, those are really l- l- little sloppy knees um, right there. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, there you go. Yeah, a little saggy knees. Um, so, so the legs here are made out of iron. And almost everyone agrees that th- this was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire defeated the, the known world. They were expansive. They were powerful. They crushed everybody. All the descriptions that are given to us in Daniel is exactly what Rome was like. 
Now, we have after iron these feet that are made out of iron and clay mixed. And we're told iron and clay don't mix, and that's kind of the point. That something happened after Rome where things were mixed up a little bit, and yet they still have a little bit of Rome in them, and yet they're kind of mixed and scattered and different, but not very strong because of that. What could that be? Well, there's a ton of debate around that. And for me, I go back to a paper that I wrote in college. Back when I was in college, I was actually a a history major, and I remember taking a, a Roman history class and writing a paper where my thesis was the Roman Empire never actually fully ceased to exist. That if actually you look at everything from the Catholic Church to the fact that most um, European and Western civilizations have a little Roman tie with language and culture, that even today we're quite divided, we're quite mixed up, we're quite all over the place, and yet we all have this little tie back to the Roman Empire. A lot of schools of thought that came out of the Roman Empire are still the thoughts that we have today. So I think that this idea of this iron and clay, the feet here, is Rome, but it's sort of kind of like you think of it as Rome too, (laughs) that we're sort of in today. Now, again, I want to say this very, very clearly. This is my current viewpoint, subject to change by tomorrow. Because it's prophecy, and we do our best to try to understand this, but we have to wrestle with what this says. And so I think that this is where we are, that we are currently living in the feet. Right there. That's where we're living right now. So what do we do with this? Well, regardless of what your views are on the kingdoms and which kingdoms are represented here, we can all agree on this point from this prophecy. Things get bigger and stronger and bigger and stronger, but they're made out of inferior stuff. And in an increasingly connected world where we have a cultural arrogance looking backward, we can remember that just because something is new, be it a worldview or a haircut, doesn't mean that it is necessarily better. What we see is that these things get worse and worse and more difficult and more difficult over time. Now, remember when I told you that there was a critical fourth mistake that we could make when studying Daniel and prophecy like this? We're finally at that spot in this passage in Daniel 2, verses 44 through 45. This is what it says. In those da- the days of those kings, this is the, the, the feet of iron and clay. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And his kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to the end, but it will endure forever. You saw a stone break off in the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron and bronze and fired clay and silver and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. And I love this last statement. The dream is certain. He goes, I got all the details right, didn't I? And its interpretation is reliable. What was the most important thing that he just said? There is a coming kingdom that will never be destroyed. This kingdom will be in the hands of a king that will never pass it off to another. 
It will never be given to another people. This is a kingdom that will crush all other kingdoms. It will endure forever. The most critical mistake when we deal with, when dealing with prophecy like this, is we forget it's about Jesus. Jesus, who is often described in Scripture as a rock, as a stone, as a cornerstone, as a stumbling stone. He is the rock that breaks off without a hand and crushes all other kingdoms, hurling at the feet of clay and iron and crushing this whole thing. Remember what he said back in, earlier in this chapter? Let me go back. Because he said two things about the statue I want you to catch. Verse 34 and 35, he said, as you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay and crushed them. And the iron and the fired clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them around and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. I think there are two plausible interpretations of what this means. And again, it depends on what you think we are and if we're in the feet right now, okay? There's two plausible interpretations. The first is, if we're living in the feet, which is my current view, when Jesus came to earth the first time and lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was buried rose again, ascended to heaven to the right hand of God the Father, where he, he sits ready to, 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 to plead to God the Father for any of the sins of any of the people who, who, would, who would believe in him. When he did all that, he was the stone hurling through the air to the feet of the statue. And now we live in a world that is in the process of crumbling and deteriorating away. But that one day, Jesus will come again, and he will establish his kingdom, and his kingdom will be like this great mountain that fills the entire world. His kingdom will be more bigger than any kingdom that has ever been. It'll be more precious than any kingdom that has ever been. And in chapter 7, which is necessarily linked to chapter 2, Daniel has another vision. And we're going to cover that in a couple of weeks, but I cannot resist reading part of it right now. Because this is what Daniel says. He says, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And it wasn't just Daniel that said this would happen. Jesus said it too. In Matthew, Jesus was talking about the end of the world, and he says this. He says, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the people of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. When that day comes, which is still down the road, when that day comes, when Jesus returns the second time, all of the kingdoms of humanity will crumble along with all that we think is strong, like iron, all that we think is precious, like gold. It will melt before him until the only kingdom that's left is the kingdom of Jesus. 
So what does this have to do with us? I know you're probably sitting there thinking, well, I didn't sign up for a history lesson when I came in today. And this prophecy stuff is weird. I could have got that on cable access, a TV or a YouTube channel, right? But we are in this last verse. There's this weird word that Jesus uses. It's called elect. And this is one of Jesus' way of describing the people that he has called to himself. People who have believed in him, who've placed their faith in him. And it is a reminder that we can build our own kingdoms as strong as that we think that they're going to be. We can build kingdoms that we think are precious. And they're all going to crumble away. And those who will be left in that final kingdom that will be like a mountain that will fill the world are those Jesus has called to himself. And so my challenge to you is if Jesus has been calling out to your heart, if the Holy Spirit has been just nagging at you to believe in Jesus, make this the day that you do, and you will know that on that day when Jesus returns, you will be called to be with him. Now, what happens is, with all of our kingdoms that we build, there's a problem, and the problem is at the center of our kingdoms, and the, the, the problem is, is we build self-oriented, sinful kingdoms. And you can see this flaw in Nebuchadnezzar's response to Daniel. Check this out, because it's going to sound good, but it's not. Daniel's response, uh, Daniel 2, 46. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshiped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. Since you were able to reveal this mystery, then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. And at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained in the king's court. So I don't know if you caught it. This all sounds good. But right away at the beginning, Nebuchadnezzar missed the point. What did he try to do? He tried to worship Daniel as if Daniel was the God. Daniel had already told him, listen, this ain't ain't about my wisdom. It's about God. But even though he said, your God is the God of gods, your God is, is the Lord of kings, he wanted to worship Daniel. And I think the only thing that stuck in Nebuchadnezzar's brain at that point was, I am the head of gold. (laughs) There is never going to be a king as great as me. And why do I think Nebuchadnezzar thought that? Because of the very next verse. Chapter 3, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The very first thing he does is he builds a statue, a golden statue, to himself. But of course, that's next week's message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for prophecy. We thank you for history that is written in advance. Because it tells us that you are the God who reveals mysteries. We acknowledge that Jesus is the king that will one day establish his kingdom that will never end. And we just thank you that he has invited us in to be part of that kingdom. 
And so as we look around our, our world today at the little kingdoms that we build, the powerful kingdoms, the precious kingdoms that we think will last, help us to remember that you are still God and Jesus is still king. We pray all of this in our King Jesus' name. Amen.